I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is an open source extra, playing catch, so to speak, coast to coast with Robert Pogue Harrison. He's a teaching legend at Stanford in the humanities. He's a Dante scholar, but he's a contemporary and a podcaster, a podcaster of ideas of all things. Pogue Harrison, you keep opening doors for me into the weeds of social media, for example, into the source power, and now maybe the shipwreck of things like Facebook. You got it because your colleague and friend, Rene Girard, understood it as an almost philosophical proposition 20 years ago. I see a story of ideas here, Pogue Harrison, and an opening for you and me to have a conversation. Okay, well, Chris, thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to engage in this conversation coast to coast. I feel a little bit like Ken Kesey to your Timothy Leary, <laughs> speaking to you from Stanford and you being there in Boston. On that question of social media, the funny thing is that just before coming into the studio, a, a friend of mine called me who said that she had been reading a um, very interesting article by Greg Jackson in the Hedgehog Review called The Inner Life of a Sinking Ship, which is about social media. I didn't know that people now on the average check their phones about 150 times a day. And most of that is in order to check their Instagram or Facebook. And the point that Greg Jackson is making from what I learned from this friend of mine is that most people do that in order to soothe anxiety, in order to feel less lonely, but it actually creates this addiction, as you call it. And that addiction is couched in the idea that we do the addicting behavior to soothe the anxiety. But Jackson's point is that social media and other forms of media actually shift what we think of as our choices and agency. And this is something interesting to think about. I'm an addictive personality, but I do not understand the addiction to social media. Something like Facebook, to me, what the appeal is to have a prosthetic self or a prosthetic social life, or prosthetic friends. I say prosthetic because as a student of mine whom I queried, a freshman, when I asked him what would happen if they took your Facebook page away, and he said to me very seriously, if my Facebook page didn't exist, I think that I would no longer exist. Wow. For me... I've been in the Facebook world, sort of, and cured myself. Former addict, gone cold turkey, maybe. But your man, René Girard, French intellectual, died about three years ago. He saw something here, and he told his student, Peter Thiel, about it, enough so that Peter Thiel became the first huge outside investor in Facebook. I have a feeling your man, Girard, saw the power, but also the crash that we may be witnessing, certainly in Europe, already. What crash now are you referring to, Chris? Because from what I'm reading, it, Facebook is bigger than ever. It has more millions of viewers. It doesn't seem to be crashing in any um, quantitative sense of the word. Well, at some I level, mean, it's been revealed as exploitive. England, especially yes. Parliament, is, is hounding uh, Mark Zuckerberg till they get him in front of them, and they're going to rake him for all kinds of business practices, but the, the fundamental idea is being attacked too, that these are not real connections, they're not real friends, it's playing with language for the crassest commercial use. But anyway, quite apart from that, I, 
It's the idea of, in Girard's work, this word mimesis from the Greek, imitation, that we are an imitative species, that something with a terrible envy built into it, a competitive desire to be like some ideal of the other person, and that Facebook was the perfect mechanical vehicle of it. Well, for the sake of our listeners, let me just um, take a step back and say who Rene Girard was. He was a colleague of mine, a good friend of mine here at Stanford. He came to the United States in 1947 from France and taught as, at a number of American universities, always in departments of literature, although he had his PhD in history. And he published this foundational book in uh, the 1960s called Deceit, Desire, and the Novel in English. It has a different title in French. And in that book, he put forward this theory for which he's rightly kind of famous today, which is called the mimetic theory. As you said, that word mimesis comes from the Greek word for imitation. And Girard claims that our desires are actually not our own. We have this illusion that uh, there's nothing more proper to my inner self than my own desires. But he argues in that first book of his that it's actually other people's desire that we imitate. And that mimetic desire becomes a syndrome that he uncovers in a number of the great novels of the 19th, early 20th century. You know, we're talking about Stendhal and Dostoevsky, Flaubert, Proust, Cervantes even. And this theory of mimetic desire then, you know, leads him to all sorts of insights into human psychology that I think are directly relevant to the social media phenomenon. He didn't have a lot to say himself about social media because he was not a practitioner of it. But as you mentioned, he had a student in the late 80s, early 90s, Peter Thiel, who, by the way, is, as we speak, teaching a course, co-teaching a course here at Stanford in my wow. department. Wow. In what? It, well, it's about ideas of sovereignty and globalization. And of course, Rene Girard is one of the thinkers that he is dealing with. Peter Thiel, yeah, he took these courses with Rene Girard. He understood the mimetic theory and thought that it, it really was a key to human behavior and psychology and also to the geopolitics of our world. I don't think it's by chance that he was the first investor in Facebook. I think he understood that Facebook was going to become this vast theater of mimetic desire and mimetic envy. You write in that article that hooked me, Pogue, you said it took a highly intelligent Girardian, that is Peter Thiel, well-schooled in mimetic theory to intuit early on that Facebook was about to open a worldwide theater of imitative desire on people's personal computers. Peter Thiel himself, in interviews, has confirmed Girard's influence on him. You'd have a lunch discussion or a discussion with him in the... Um in, in, uh, at some of the cl uh, colloquium seminars that, that we did at Stanford, where uh, one would really be struck just by his incredible uh, perceptiveness into human nature. I suspect that uh, when the history of the 20th century is written circa 2100, he will, he'll be seen as truly one of the great uh, intellectuals, but it may still be a long time till it's, uh, till it's fully, fully understood. 
And in fact, this uh, article that I was referencing earlier raises a question of what is social media doing to human agency and what it's doing to our sense of who is actually making our choices for us. Are we making choices for ourselves or are our choices mediated hopelessly by this vast network of social media that most people are connected to these days? Explain how social media and friending and showing your vacation pictures or your cats or your grandmother's death or whatever serves this idea of imitation. Well, look, if I go to Greece for the summer and I post pictures of my wonderful vacation in the beaches of Greece and so forth, well, if you're one of my online friends, it's the chances are that you're eventually going to post pictures of an equally desirable destination. Or if I start posting comments and photos of a dinner party that I gave, chances are you're going to do the same because, as Rene Girard intuited, human beings are profoundly mimetic. We imitate each other in our behavior, but what his uh, original insight was that we don't only imitate behavior, we imitate each other's desires. And therefore... uh, If you want a beach in Greece, I want a beach in Greece. And yet... So much of social media is about the envy of of what we perceive to be a fullness of being in um, those people whom we are rivalrous with or who serve as our models of emulation and who we think are uh, somehow playing the game better than we are. Pogue, you say, René Girard, among the human scientists, the great ones of the last century and more, you know, is as all-inclusive, as deep in certain ways as Freud or Marx in what motivates them, in what motivates us. Explain that in terms of desire. How is mimesis different from Freudian desire? Well, to begin with, it doesn't postulate an unconscious, which is one of the theoretical problems with Freudian desire. It looks at human behavior and can actually empirically show. Originally, Girard looked at literature for his forensic evidence, but the reason that book made such an impression on people is because they recognized themselves in the mimetic desire that they saw in the characters after Girard had pointed out how it works. So I don't think it's, uh, I think that the theory of desire is, is much more uh, intuitive and something that is almost un- unproblematic in nature, whereas the Freudian theory of uh, deeply buried Oedipal complexes and so forth is um, a harder sell from the scientific point of view. Once you see mimesis and imitation, <laughs> in your case, I mean, you see it everywhere. You quote a V.S. Naipaul character, but there was a writer who went deep One of his characters says, we become what we see of ourselves in the eyes of others. Correct. And that is in a book that Naipaul published called The Mimic Men, which is the way in which the ex-colonial ruling class people have taken the British colonizers, ex-colonizers, as their models of imitation, and yet they know, the narrator in his book, The Mimic Men, knows that 
he will never be accepted within that society of the British ruling class. And yet it serves as, you know, that, that, that's the model, it's the ideal, the ego ideal. And uh, we become what we see in the eyes of others is something that that narrator realizes is the source of his, um, well, the secondary nature of, his, of himself and uh, also a source of constant frustration. I was struck, Pogue, also our man, William James, who knew Freud very slightly, but he plumbed consciousness as Freud did the unconscious. He wrote about imitation. He said in his Principles of Psychology, 1890, he wrote, we start with instinct to suckle and cry out, and from then on, man is essentially the imitative animal. His whole educability, and in fact, the whole history of civilization depended on this trait, which his strong tendencies to rivalry, jealousy, and acquisitiveness reinforce. And, says William James, there is the imitative tendency in masses of men and produces panics and orgies and frenzies of violence in which only the rarest individuals can actively withstand. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's that's so convergent with Girard's theory of mimetic desire. And there, there you go. You see, William James and Girard are looking at desire in the social world, in the world of human relations. Freud's theories of desire are rather enclosed within the psyche of the individual self and the individual self's family history. James and Girard locate desire in our relations with others and, there, and therefore it becomes a um, hugely important social and as well as political force in, in, um, in history. You've persuaded me in what I've read so far, Pogue, that René Girard, there's nobody so obscure out there in the world of big ideas who is so relevant, who's had more to say about the mental distress that we are all living through in the 21st century. I want to know more. It's true that Girard is not nearly as acknowledged as he deserves to be yet. And yet, more and more, it's becoming clear that his um, insights into the mimetic mechanism, as well as what he later developed as the scapegoat mechanism, that these two fundamental ideas of his entire corpus get more and more confirmation through our social as well as our historical geopolitical history. And it seems to me to be inevitable that this relatively obscure French intellectual, pretty well known within the walls of academia, is going to become much more of a major figure in, in the world at large. Yeah, can I quote you on, on the world of 2019? You say, the explosion of social media, the resurgence of populism, and the increasing virulence of reciprocal violence all suggest that the contemporary world is becoming more and more recognizably Girardian in its behavior. Where else can and you there, yeah, see yeah, it? Well, I can, yeah, and I can, I can add there that th this relationship between desire and violence is fundamental because while desire is mimetic, violence is maybe the one thing that is even more mimetic than human desire. You know, if you hit me, I'm likely to hit you back. Or if you start as a nation 
uh, arming yourself, that means your neighbor nation is going to start arming itself. The mimetic contagion of violence is something that René Girard spent the second half of his intellectual career thinking a lot about. And there's no doubt that the psychology of reciprocal violence is at work in many places in the world as we speak. And to jump ahead to, toward the end of his life, he sounds obsessed with the danger of modern military violence, as was William James, too, a hundred years earlier. The birth of the American empire scared him to death. But here's Girard at the end of his life, toward the end of his life. History, you might say, is a test for mankind, but we know very well that mankind is failing that test. He wrote that in the 21st century. He said, in some ways, the Gospels and Scriptures are predicting that failure since it ends with eschatological themes, which are literally the end of the world. René Girard's conclusion was, we must face our neighbors and declare unconditional peace. Even if we are provoked, challenged, we must give up violence once and for all. Right. Yeah, that's easier said than done, Chris, as you know. And I think Girard is far more compelling in his diagnosis of the problem of violence rather than what he offers as as a kind of alternative, which is a, a kind of pacifism that one shouldn't actually discount it. The idea that this refusal to retaliate, he believed, was really the only recommendation, the only sane recommendation in the face of this vortex that international violence could could create. I, I, if I can quote from the last book that he published called Battling to the End, where he's analyzing war, and it's actually a book where he um, goes back to visit the thought of Clausewitz, the great theorist of modern warfare, Karl von Clausewitz, 1780 to 1831, Girard writes, Clausewitz sees very clearly that modern wars are as violent as they are only because they are reciprocal. Now, when we hear the word reciprocal here in the Girardian context, that means also mimetic. I continue, mobilization involves more and more people until it is total, as Ernst Jünger wrote of the 1914 war, that famous concept of the total war. It was because he was responding to the humiliations inflicted by the Treaty of Versailles and the occupation of the Rhineland that Hitler was able to mobilize a whole people. Likewise, it was because he was responding to the German invasion that Stalin achieved a decisive victory over Hitler. It was because he was responding to the United States that bin Laden planned 9-11. The one who believes he can control violence by setting up defenses is in fact controlled by violence. And that seems to be a syndrome without a way out. And that's why this recommendation of non-retaliation, of, um, of not striking back, it was why Girard thought that that was the only kind of sane ethic that he could propose for us all. Mm. There's more of Gerard I want to get into, Pogue, but I also want to introduce you and specifically your own podcast. You call yours Entitled Opinions. We call ours American Conversation with Global Attitude. People keep telling me there's a meeting of minds to be made here between us, but specifically 
I love it that in the opening to Entitled Opinions, you tease your audience a little about setting the bar pretty high, maybe too high for some listeners. Warning. The following is an unadulterated, unusually concentrated intellectual discussion. It should be avoided by anyone who does not have a very high tolerance for thinking. If you have an aversion to the exchange of ideas, if you're deficient in curiosity, if you suffer from common American anti-intellectualism, then please tune out now. This show promotes the narcotic of intelligent conversation. It takes us into the garden and seats us at the banquet table of ideas, where we feast on the bread of angels. Clear and distinct thinking, intuitive analysis, and an enriched use of English. We bring them all to bear on the pursuit of self-knowledge. So be warned, we don't dumb things down around here. We ratchet up and let it rip. Ideas spoken in podcast. Who listens, who gets it, who doesn't, what students think of it, how different it is from teaching, how do you avoid it becoming, you know, uh, pedagogical or pedantic? How does it go? Well, the way it works with me, Chris, might be different than what you have going on over there in Boston. I, um, I air my show, my radio. It's primarily a radio show. I insist it remaining a radio show, even though it airs on Stanford College Radio and, and it, it only reaches a Bay Area audience live. But nevertheless, I, um, even though 99.9% of my audience is in the podcast medium, I like the idea that it's still a radio show. And for me, I don't have any sponsors. I don't need to worry about ratings or clicks or we don't have social media. I, I'm very happy and, in fact, eager for Entitled Opinions to be a, a cult show that operates really under the radar, underground, as it were. It has de- developed you know, a wide following around the world precisely because it is unabashedly about ideas. It doesn't worry about the general anti-intellectualism of, of American society. I hate to say it, but we are, we are to a great extent an anti-intellectual. We have an anti-intellectual strain in our society. As I say often in my shows, you know, we descend into the catacombs, and that's almost literally because KZSU, which is the station, the radio station here of Stanford, you have to walk down about five or six steps, and it's like entering into the underworld, and that we go down into the catacombs in order to practice this persecuted religion of thinking. And in those catacombs, that's where new religions are born. And if I were a founder of a religion, I would hope it would be a religion of, of, of just thinking, exchange of ideas, revisiting you know the great uh, works of literature, philosophy, issues of science, of the cosmos. And I have the, um, the luxury of not having to worry about sp- sponsorship or ratings and so forth. It's unabashedly intellectual in a high-octane mode. Dante spoke of, of the bread of angels as um, the kind of intellectual uh, nourishment that comes from the study of science and cosmology and philosophy and so forth. This kind of bread of angels is actually a- available for free. And 
not a lot of people avail themselves of it, either because they they uh, they don't know where to go to find it, or because we tend to uh, those of us in this business feel that we always have to dumb things down if we're going to, you know, maintain an audience. But I don't. I think you're absolutely right that the the hunger for a serious exchange of ideas is out there, and it's you know it's up to those of us who are, are um, able to do so to um, provide that nourishment. What's your range, Pogue? What are the limits of what you like to cover in terms of science, philosophy, history, literature, as you say? It's a, it's a broad range, very wide range. The shows I do about topics that are not in my wheelhouse of, of let's say, speci- specialty, like science, cosmology, medicine, I have to do a lot more homework for those shows. And yet I feel that there's always some reward in doing that homework because I want to be an intelligent interlocutor with my guests, whoever he or she is. Uh, And therefore I do cover mostly the wheelhouse is philosophy and literature, the history of, and, and we're going back, you know, from the Greeks to the present day. Uh, but since I am at Stanford and I have this, you know, w- wide array of faculty members uh, here at my disposal to engage in conversations with, it's more and more going into realms of the, of science as well as political um, political theory. In the last few years, maybe the election of Trump has something to do with this, but in the last couple of seasons of Entitled Opinions have uh, had a much stronger political slant than they they did earlier. Pog, we are drawn, as you are, into sciences, ready or not, most especially because the gene editing boom is seems to be concentrated here in Boston, Cambridge, as well as in Berkeley, this great rivalry over who's going to own the CRISPR patents and make tons of money on them. But there are huge questions of uh, of understanding of humanistic tradition. Who are we? What can be? What cannot be amended? Where is the soul in all of those genes? And what part of intelligence, for example, can be tweaked? Uh, I know you have... You have been to the mountaintop with those scientists and some of the conferences, the scientists here who remember you very vividly for speaking, for connecting Dante and the trial of Ulysses going back to sea and going out of the Mediterranean to his death in the Atlantic Ocean as a kind of metaphor of where the gene scientists are heading. But how do you do it? How much science do you have to know? How, how ready do you find the scientists to talk in your humanistic tradition? Well, those scientists are not going to talk in the humanistic tradition, but for some reason I was invited. I, I know the reason is because I, I, I'm very skeptical about what's taking place in the gene editing CRISPR um, technology. I, it's true that Dante's Ulysses is almost like the archetype of scientific discovery. He is the one who wants to venture into the unpeopled world. He tells his his crew at the Straits of Gibraltar, let us, you know, 
continue to pursue virtue and knowledge. That is what you are meant to be. You are humans. You're not brutes. Let's pursue virtue and knowledge. And the scientific enterprise is following in this Ulyssian wake to explore newer and newer frontiers. But I think that there's a line that um, is being crossed today, which is that of, uh, you know, taking the role of, of, of creation into our own hands and presuming to know better than nature what it is that nature should be doing with itself. And I, I think here is where one has to also question uh, the motivations that are sponsoring a lot of biotechnology. These motivations are always couched in extremely benevolent terms, that you are trying to eradicate diseases or you're trying to save a child's life. There's always the pathetic appeal, pathos-laden, not pathetic in the sense of pathetic, but pathos-laden appeal to um, making sure that people no longer die of malaria because we can now re-engineer mosquitoes so that we can wipe out the, uh, the malaria mosquito and so forth. But what gets forgotten is the first principle of the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm. There's a fundamental difference between presuming to do good and then to do no harm. Because in the name of doing good, you can license a lot of harm. We know that even from from our political history, if you believe that the end justifies the means. So, so on the one hand, there's this rhetoric of benevolence, and that's why I bring in Dante also another figure from Dante's Divine Comedy, which is the monster Gerion. And he's a monster who st- stands for fraud in, in Dante's Inferno. And he has the face of a gentle and kind, smiling man. He has a furry body, and he has the tail of a scorpion. Now, when it comes to CRISPR and gene editing technologies, other biotechnologies, what we are shown is always the face of the smiling, kind man. And I want to know where the scorpion tail is hiding, you know, in this uh, in this new explosion of, of um, biotech, because I think that there is such a tale that um, we have to take into account. You can take your pick of scorpion's tales. I mean, there's eugenics. It's kind of the folly of improving the human being, breeding it for speed or, or whatever. There's also the scorpion's tale of sheer commerce. The numbers of people that will pay thousands and more for a straighter nose or whiter teeth or uh, thicker hair or you name it. Oh, sure. And here we go back to desire, Chris, because if we have the means at our disposal to genetically design our own children, how many of them are going to be blonde and tall and athletic? How many of them are going to actually correspond to the Nazi ideal Aryan type? I'd say a a great many of them, maybe also for mimetic reasons, who knows. But it is, I've I've said this before in company, I've never said it on air, but I'll say that Mengele in Auschwitz, he 
will eventually be recognized as a visionary of the 20th century, even though he will, his methods will be condemned and his Nazi affiliations will never be endorsed. But the idea is that he had this vision of, of, a, of a eugenics that, that um, so much of our contemporary biotechnology is following in this, these Mengelian protocols, as far as I can tell. So I'll, I'll throw that out there. Wow. Pogue, this is so fascinating. In the applications of one word, mimesis, and imitation, I want to take one more crack at another Girard before we're done. He said, fascinatingly, people are against my theory because it is, at the same time, an avant-garde and a Christian theory. The avant-garde people, he said, are anti-Christian, and many of the Christians are anti-avant-garde, and even the Christians have been very distrustful of me, says René Girard, who was a kind of unorthodox Christian, but he became, it sounded more and more Christian as he moved along. Explain that piece, and then I want to hear specifically his thoughts on religion, where worship and, and churches and a lot of the less savory pieces of it, including scapegoating and sacrifice, are wrapped up in right. his, his thinking. Yeah, so after he published that book, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, in the 60s, in 1972, he published a book called uh, Violence and the Sacred. And it took people who knew his earlier work very much by surprise because it no longer dealt with the world of literature and, and, and the novel. He had now become a cultural anthropologist, and he was proposing a theory of the violent origins of archaic religions in what he called the scapegoating mechanism where he imagined these mimetic crises, these moments in a prehistoric uh, primitive society where um, for one reason or another, a crisis could be famine, it could be drought or some other natural disaster or just social tension and where everyone now starts imitating the other's hysteria and getting to a point where either the that primitive community is, is, is going to destroy itself through a war of all against all. But Girard hypothesized that those that avoided that self-immolation did so by identifying rather arbitrarily a scapegoat, one person or subgroup of people in the community, slightly different than the rest, and blaming them, accusing them of being responsible for the disorder, and through a collective lynching of the community of that victim, all of a sudden, magically, the community was healed. So an act of unanimous violence leads to the restoration of a spirit of unanimity and harmony and order, so much so that that victim developed a magical power of healing and was often sacralized. And through this mechanism, Girard presumed to account for the sacrificial origins of so many of the archaic religions. His view of Christianity, to come to your question now, was that the Gospels in particular, the Hebrew scriptures also, but, but um, more, more overtly in the, in the Christian Gospels, you have a figure in Jesus who is a victim of a 
scapegoat mechanism. And yet the difference between the Christian scripture and, and archaic religions is that it reveals the fact that the victim is essentially innocent and that those, the persecutors and the lynchers, are the guilty ones. And therefore, Girard believed Christianity, in essence, was the revelation of the scandal of the, uh, of the violent foundations of all previous religions. Mm. And in fact, yeah. So it, and, it, it, Christianity... I believe he says Christianity, in effect, undoes religion, or is it the end of religion, or is it the last religion, because it, in it fact, reveals that, the yeah. flaw in the whole creation of such things. Yeah, and I can quote you on, uh, quote him on that. Christ, uh, I'm quoting, Christianity is not only one of the destroyed religions, but it is the destroyer of all religions. The death of God is a Christian phenomenon. In its modern sense, atheism is a Christian invention. And... He believed that, indeed, Christianity eventually put an end to all previous, you know, archaic violent religions. Yeah, so... And the, the strange part about the whole cycle is that René Girard came to see the Bible as true, true in its observation of anthropology in a way, but really of human history. There was a description in this realization of the innocence of the victim. <laughs> there was a real progress, a climb up from barbarity, and an, and a response to violence, to the whole idea of violence. I mean, that's exactly that's deep. That's deep for a podcast, Pogue. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, and there's two important aspects. One is the the notion of the victim and how much of our own contemporary culture is still victim-obsessed and victim-oriented and uh, on the side of the victim. And this is, from Girard's point of view, a kind of secularized instantiation of, you know, the Christian message that the scapegoating of victims is largely an arbitrary and um, what he called satanic phenomena. Satan is the other important thing. Satan is not, you know, a devil. Satan is, in, in, in Hebrew, it means the accuser, the prosecutor, the adversary. Accuse, lynchings and scapegoating begin with accusation. And that accusation spreads mimetically from individual to individual until Everyone uh, is on the same page in terms of he or she is the guilty one. It could be the witch, it could be the... And then through that sort of um, collective orgiastic froth comes a, a murder or some kind of victimization. Two millennia of Christianity have made it rather impossible for us to believe anymore in the scapegoating mechanism and to believe in in the actual guilt of, of victims. We tend to think that victims are arbitrarily victimized uh, more often than not. And in that sense, Christianity has, yes, it has had a enormous sort of effect on the way we, we think about these issues. And yet the spirit of accusation has not gone away after two millennia. We still belong very much to a um, an accusatory kind of society where we're always pointing 
at someone else. And reciprocal uh, violence is out there too, obviously. Oh, yes. It, it's out there. And it's not out there only in the tribal warfares of you know primitive societies. It's out there even in the geopolitics of the 20, 20th century in uh, the First World War and the Second World War and the U.S.-Soviet relations in the Cold War continuing on in our own time, the Middle East, reciprocal violence uh, seems very alive and well in that regard. And the other great insight of Girard is that violence is more, is produced more by sameness, identity rather than difference. It's when the two opponents or enemies or rivals are so identical to one another that you have the greater possibility of violence um, breaking out. So this insight that identity rather than difference is more responsible for for violence is another fundamental insight of his. Robert Pogue Harrison, this is totally fascinating to me. We haven't even begun on Girard's theory of literature. I mean, the author seems to be disappearing in a lot of postmodern literary studies. He says the author is the story. In a, in a writer like Dostoevsky, for example, who starts with poor folk and notes from underground and ends up in the kind of exalted spirit of Alyosha in the Brothers Karamazov, that's one instance. I want to ask you the next time, is Girard's body of work in itself autobiographical of his own progress from cynicism toward a kind of exalted, not simple, but ecstatic view of the possibilities. But this will do for the first effort, Pogue Harrison. I, I enjoyed it intensely. We admire your work hugely on Entitled Opinions. It was wonderful. Well, fun. I hope that I hope the heads aren't going to be spinning too much. <laughs> Mine is. Yeah. But we'll get over yeah. it. Robert Pogue Harrison. All right, Chris. Thank Good. you. Good to talk to you. Take My care. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.